0: You're listening to the City Church Downtown Podcast. Now, here's Doug Robbins. Well, how are we doing today, City Church? <laughs> good to see you. All right, man, it's good to see you guys. I want to shout out to those of you in the balcony. How are we doing up there, balcony? Doing pretty good? All right, there mildly rowdy up there today gotten plenty of sleep I want to welcome those of you that are watching online as well as those of you that are in the cafe today Could we give a little love to our cafe volunteers that are serving coffee today and the band over there they great Yeah so it's a good experience over there and uh, I want to celebrate the worship that we had Tuesday night at Awaken. A few of you were there for that, and it was a fantastic experience of mostly musical worship. So could you guys join me in thanking our band, Gideon, and others that put on that event to help us worship? Isn't that right? Yeah. So, um... We've been in this series, in case you're coming here new, perhaps you came with a friend or you just somehow stumbled onto this church and you're new here. We've been in this series of conversations called Read the Red. In case you're new to Bible reading, the red parts are basically the parts that Jesus spoke in, the, the red letters are the words of Jesus. And during the series, we've said that change happens daily, not in a day. And isn't that good that we don't have to change immediately, but we just walk with Jesus one day at a time, one step at a time, and Uh, over time, he gradually changes our lives. And we've encouraged you to read through like this 84-day reading plan of the red-letter sections of the Bible. And part of the reason for that is that the purpose of our conversations here are not to point you to me or point you to any other religious leader or any stage personality, but we want you to go straight to Jesus. We want to point you towards Jesus. And uh, we said last week, and we'll repeat again this week, is that when Jesus is magnified, your soul is rested and energized. That's kind of the transforming idea for the conversation today. Could we say it out loud together already? Here we go. When Jesus is magnified, your soul is rested and energized. And would you allow me on the fly to change that phrase around a little bit and make it personal for us, where we say it again, but this time we say, when Jesus is magnified, my soul is rested and energized because I think some of us need to receive it in that way. Ready? Here we go. When Jesus is magnified, my soul is rested and energized. And so, um, you—it's kind of counterintuitive because you think, "Hey, I'm I'm coming to like worship someone else," but really, there's something in it for you too. It's like when you magnify Jesus and make much of him, it does something inside of you. It brings this new sense of rest and peace in your life that gives you an energy. How many besides me could use a little rest in your soul and rest in your life right now, Right? Um, some of you need internal rest. Some of you just need to get some sleep. Now, some of you know what it's like to have a spouse that keeps you up at night. You Know what I'm saying? Don't raise your hand, okay? But Uh, Maybe you're like that older couple that were married for like 50 years, you know, they're getting older now and they're laying there in bed and the wife says to the husband, you know, honey, when we were younger, you used to hold my hand in bed at night and he was a little irritated by this, but he reaches over and he holds her hand and she's feeling good, but that wasn't enough for her. She said, you know, honey, when we were younger, you used to snuggle up against me, you know, so he's rolling his eyes. He's a little irritated, and then he scoots over, and he snuggles up against her. She's happy for just a minute, and then she ratchets things up a notch, and she says, you know, honey, when we were younger, you used to nibble on my ear. And finally, he just kind of throws the covers off, and he gets out of bed, and she's a little hurt, and she's like, where are you going? And he goes, I'm going to get my teeth. <laughs> see? <laughs> so see... Married couples, what we've got to look forward to, it's like someday you'll nibble on her ear, the ear that has a hearing aid in it, with your false teeth to the romantic smell of Gay in the air. That's what we've got to look forward to. So just go to sleep, get some rest, it'll be all good. Now, uh, remember, last Sunday, we saw that one of the keys to understanding the red letters of Jesus is to understand the Jewish nature and background of the red letters of Jesus. There's a theologian I like named Brad Young, and he says, Jesus never attended church. He never celebrated Christmas. He never wore new clothes on Easter Sunday. Check this out. Let it land on you. Jesus worshiped in the synagogue. He celebrated the Passover. He ate kosher food. He offered prayers in the temple in Jerusalem. And Brad Young is just one of the many thinkers that shaped my thinking in the Jewishness of the red letter sections of the Bible. I've listed a group of those on our social media if you're a reader, researcher, and want to look into that more. But if Jesus were following the rabbinical system of his day, which he was, most of his disciples probably would have been younger people. You know, it's probably because young people still believe they can change the world. When you get my age, you just want to make sure you have health insurance, a 401k, and a semi decent internet connection. You know what I'm saying? But young people still believe that they can change the world. And these young Jewish people wanted to become what's called a Talmud. It's like a disciple, it's kind of like, a Padawan to a Jedi. That's what they were looking to become with one of these great and learned rabbis. But before they could study with a rabbi, they had to go through the Jewish educational system. And that started at age four with what's called Beth Sefer. Would you say that word with me real quick? Ready? Here we go. Beth Sefer. Okay. During Beth Sefer, You, as a kid, were trying to memorize Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. But once you graduated from Beth Sefer, uh, you would go to what's called Bet Midrash. Let's say Bet Midrash together, Ready? Here we go. Bet Midrash, okay? Uh, During this segment of your education, you would have tried to memorize the rest of the Old Testament, and you would learn to interpret passages. You're not just committed to memory, but you're learning to interpret. And once you graduate from Bet Midrash, then you can apply... To study with one of these great rabbis. It's like kids today trying to apply to get into the college of their choice. And they would start out, they would just go directly to the rabbi and they would approach this learned, very respected man. And they would start out with what they call shtick. You know, it's like, sir, I perceive you're a very wise man. May I be your Talmud? In other words, they're saying, sir, do you believe that I am? can be like you. And then this great learned rabbi would say something like this, son, why don't you go ahead and quote Deuteronomy? Not like a verse from Deuteronomy, you know, (laughs) but like the entire book of Deuteronomy from Torah. And that kid's like, sure, I can do that. I learned that like in the third or fourth grade. So the young man recites Deuteronomy from memory. And then the rabbi ratchets things up a notch and he says, son, Now go ahead and tell me the 17 times that Amos uses Deuteronomy as the basis for his prophetic word. And the kid gets through 10 of them. He gets through 15, 16, but he just can't remember number 17. And the rabbi looks at that kid and says, son, you have a great heart for God. Fishing is a noble trade. Go and fish. And that kid puts his head down like a lot of kids who don't get into the college of their choice. But the kid realizes, you know, not everyone gets to study with one of the great rabbis. So I'll go and learn the family trade. It's all good. But here's the different thing about Yeshua or Jesus, our rabbi, is that he didn't make people come to him, but he went to them. And he said, come, follow me. It's like he's saying, I believe that you can be like me. Uh, another place he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. See, um, so I want to look into the calling of Peter, Andrew, James and John. These four of his disciples, because the fact that they were fishing, they're, they're, they were working on a fishing boat. The fact that they were already fishing probably tells us that they had already applied to study with a rabbi and didn't get in. They didn't make the cut because these guys were the JV. They were like the B team, the C students, and that gives me hope. Anybody besides me get a little hope from that? It's like maybe even God could use me, you know? Um, someone's like PhD, someone else in the congregation saying GED, right on, God, okay. Uh, but but God allows us to to come follow him no matter our uh, intellectual prowess but Peter James and John were on this fishing boat and we'll pick up the story in Matthew 419 come follow me Jesus said and I'll make you fishers of men and at once they left their nets and followed him they were in a boat with their father Zebedee great name by the way uh, preparing their nets and Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him and I had always read that passage to say something like they were making this big sacrifice to follow Jesus when he called them. They just dropped the family business and went and followed a hippie around the Holy Land. But actually, it was like they had already applied to get into a college of their choice and didn't get in. And then Harvard or Yale calls them and says would you come and study with us? It's the opportunity of a lifetime. They dropped everything and immediately followed. And then I thought about how did Zebedee feel? That's the dad. Okay, you got the dad who his whole workforce basically just drops everything and leaves to follow Jesus. And I'm thinking Zebedee probably would have been upset that this guy takes his workforce. But I think really understanding the cultural context, it was more like this, that Zebedee goes down to the local donut shop where all his cronies are drinking coffee and eating donuts in the morning and he's like puffs his chest out and he's like, you know, my boys, the Yehus who were working on the fishing boat, they're disciples of Yeshua, the greatest rabbi in the region. My boys are Talmuds of Yeshua. See, he's proud of this because see, when Jesus has magnified, our hearts uh, receive this sense of rest and are energized, and, you know, Jesus said to these guys, you didn't choose me, I chose you, and I would always thought that was more about predestination or something like that, but really, it has nothing to do with predestination. It it has more to do with how Jesus views you. When he calls you, he believes that you can be like him. And this plays out in Peter's life. And I want to check in with a really well-known story of Peter when he walked on the water with Jesus. And uh, we'll pick up the story in Matthew chapter 14. Look at verse 29. Come, Jesus said. You know, Jesus is out on the water right here. And he says, come. And then Peter got down out of the boat and he walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught him. And here's where I want to focus in on. Look at the last part of the verse. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Now, what does he doubt? That's the question. What was Peter doubting? And one would think, well, maybe he's doubting God or Jesus. But look, Jesus is having no problems walking on the water. Jesus could be doing jumping jacks and yoga poses on the water, right? Okay, he's doing just fine. Who does Peter doubt? Himself. He doubts himself because it's not natural for him to walk on the water. He's never done this before. And I think Paul repeats this concept when he says, you can do all things through Christ who gives you the strength, see? So you don't have to doubt And that does me a lot of good. And I hope it encourages you as well because some of us think, man, I'm not smart enough or I'm not skilled enough or I don't have a lot of college degrees or uh, I'm not eloquent enough or I don't know enough Bible verses to be used of God. I mean, after all, I don't have all this, you know, Old Testament memorized and all this kind of stuff. No, he says, you can do this. I've called you. You can be like me. So he says, come, walk with me. And do you think that Peter's faith was energized when he walked on water for the first time? Even though he didn't do very well, he started to sink down. Do you think that it didn't energize his faith a little bit when he walked on the water for a time with Jesus? And see, it's like when Jesus is magnified, our souls are rested and our hearts are energized to follow him. And Peter would need that energy later on. Now, for now, I wanna go back to a story and a holy site, or actually a, a site in the Holy Land, historical site, that I've talked about before. I've taught on many times, and I want to repeat it today for those that are new. But I want to take you just for a minute to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Um, and if you look at this picture, this place, this site is known as the Gates of Hades. Have you ever wondered where the Gates of Hell are, well, there it is right there in the picture. Because the ancients believed... this was the the door to the underworld, and that souls would go down to Hades through the cave. In the first century, there would have been a waterfall or a river coming out of the cave, and so the ancients believed that this was the pathway down to Hades. And on the face of the cliff there, there would have been pictures of Pan, the half-goat, half-man pagan god, Now, Pan was known for his sexual prowess. And so most of the pictures on the cliff face would have been basically pornography of Pan with his nymphs. And the ancients who would worship Pan would come before this cliff face and they would do stuff that I'm a little embarrassed to talk about in church. You know what I mean? And there may be some kids in the room, um, so I'm not going to say it, but they're basically looking at Pan pornography here. And this is the place where Jesus took his little Jewish prude disciples and, he, and he's having this conversation with them at this site. And he says, who are the people saying that I am? And then Jesus moves in a little closer and he says, who is it that you say that I am? And this was the place where Peter made the popular declaration. Some of you remember it, where Peter said, Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You know, Peter is so bold. And Jesus is like, you know, he's, he's in power because he's been walking on water, you know, Peter is. He's like, yeah, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus encourages Peter for that declaration. He says, yeah, Peter, you know, humans didn't reveal that truth to you, but God must have revealed that to you. And I want to check in with the conversation in Matthew chapter 16, look at verse 18. Uh, and, and here's what it says. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I'll build my church. And what? The gates of Hades will not overcome it. See, this rock. So the question is, what is the rock there? Well, a lot of interpreters would say, well, Peter's name literally means like a little rock. And so on Peter, I'm gonna build my church. But I think there's another interpretation that goes along with that. And that is, Context is king and the place that they were located was the gates of Hades. And I think it could be that Jesus is saying, I'm going to take people who are struggling with looking at some pretty vile things on the face of a rock, people who are looking at porn, and I'm going to transform them and change them. I think that's why a few verses later, Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself and your selfish desires. Take up your cross and follow me. See, I'm going to build my church on people who have looked at porn of all things and I'm going to change them and make them holy. This is my church and the gates of Hades is not going to prevail against it. Does that encourage anybody besides me? Because I was just like, look. Because some of us in the room have looked at things or done things that we're really ashamed of, but Jesus still says, I believe you can be like me. We can make much of him. Now, this guy, Peter, he was pretty excited about himself by by now because not only had he walked on water, but now he'd made the great declaration. The other disciples didn't get the answer, right? He was the one that raised his hand first and he got the answer. So he thinks that he's Jesus' favorite pupil there. And he probably thinks he's kind of superior to those other people who are worshiping Pan there at the gates of Hades, you know? He's like, I'm so much better than them. They're looking at porn and I'm so holy and all of that. Uh, But you know, sometimes life brings us down a notch to show us where we're really at. And I think Peter was probably pretty proud of himself until the day that he heard a rooster crow and he had denied Jesus, not just once, Oh, he'd made a big, bold declaration, but now all of a sudden, three times in a row, he denied that he even knew Jesus. And you know what Jesus said to him when he restored him? Because, you know, Jesus is is a rabbi of restoration. He restores people's lives. Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Three times. Do you love me? And that shows us Jesus' heart, that he's not just about memorizing verses. Sure, that's important. He's not just about knowing a lot of factoids, but he's about love and relationship. And he's like, Peter, you screwed up royally. And Peter had wept bitterly over his failure. But he came back to relationship and Jesus restored him. And he would need every bit of the energy that Jesus would place into his soul to finish out his life and ministry well. How is it, by the way, that Peter finishes out his life? Well, we don't have that information in the Bible. We have to go outside the Bible to some historic uh, kinds of sources. And we're going to look at Eusebius, who wrote these words. Peter appears to have preached through Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and Asia to the Jews that were scattered abroad, who also finally, look at this part, coming to Rome, was crucified with his head upside down, his head downward, having requested of himself to suffer in this way. So Peter now, after having denied Jesus three times, is willing to die for his Lord. And scholars believe he wanted to be turned upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. This is a guy who had been energized by Jesus when he had magnified Jesus in his life. And why would Peter be willing to give his life for his rabbi, Jesus? Well, I believe that the answer to that question lies in two ancient Jewish customs. Okay, hang with me on this, ready? One of them has to do with the four cups of Passover that I'm gonna teach you. And the other has to do with the first century marriage custom. Now, Jewish people, even today, they celebrate the Passover feast. And in that feast, you would drink of four different cups. These four cups were related to the Jewish people being rescued from Egyptian slavery. And the first cup here is what's called the cup of sanctification. The cup of sanctification, where God says, I will um, set you free or bring you out of Egypt. The second cup, has to do with deliverance, where he says, I will rescue you from slavery in Egypt. So the first one is like you're sanctified or you're saved or you begin a relationship with Jesus. The second part is that you're set free from your dysfunctional behaviors. But then the third cup is known as the cup of redemption. Now I want you to remember this third cup because we're gonna come back to it here in just a minute. But the cup of redemption re- represents back in Egypt where God says, I will rescue you with my outstretched arm of wrath and judgment. Some of you remember the judgment that God brought on the Egyptian people because they had sinned against him. So this third cup of redemption is a cup of wrath and a cup of judgment that God brings on his enemies. But the fourth cup is the cup of praise, and it represents how God says, you will be my people, and I will be your God. That's something worth celebrating. So we know the four cups of Passover, right? Still celebrated today, and it was celebrated by the Jews in Jesus' day. But I wanna show you about another cup, and that was the marriage cup. So uh, how many of you ladies are single here today? Okay, raise your hands. You got to get them up. If, if you want to get married, you got to help me on this, okay? Uh, but anyways, I'm just playing with you. But here's what would happen. Here's what the young man would do when he was going to propose to you. is it His dad would go over to your house, and you'd probably be with your parents at your house, and the, the dad would take this kid over to your house, and then uh, the dad and your dad would negotiate what's called the bride price, you're like, that's right, honey. You're going to pay a lot of money for this, right? So uh, uh, that, that's what they're negotiating. They're like, you know, and it was going to be a high price. In that day, for a bride, you would pay what you would pay for your house. So it was pretty expensive. Some of you who have married off daughters in recent days, you know it. Some things don't change, do they? It's pretty expensive, you know, if you're going to pay for a wedding. But what would happen is, When the young man was going to propose, his dad would pull out a flask of wine. He would pour it into a cup. And the young man would hold up the cup to the young woman. And he would say, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Basically, he's saying, I give my life to you. Will you receive it and give me yours? That's how he proposed marriage. Now, if she wanted to decline his offer and say no... She would just simply push the cup away. But if she was going to say yes, she would take the cup. She wouldn't say a word, and she would drink it down. That's her way of saying, I receive your life, and I give you mine, see? And then later on, they could, uh, after a time of engagement, they could get married. And so keep this in mind, these two customs in mind, as we go to the, uh, the Last Supper, You've seen paintings of the Last Supper, right? Well, you know what they're doing at that Last Supper? They're celebrating the four cups, the Passover meal. And all of those young men who were Jesus' disciples were marrying age, and so they knew the marriage custom of their day very well. They're dreaming about it. They're like, yeah, I hope someday, you know, she didn't, like, push the cup away. You know, that's, that's the ultimate, you know, diss, you know, you push the cup away. But uh, anyways, they're celebrating Passover, and these Jewish boys had done Passover all the time. I mean, All their life, they had done the Passover. And Jesus gets to the third cup in the Passover ceremony. And he holds it up and he totally reframes the third cup. And he mixes the metaphors. And he says, this cup is a a new covenant in my name. And he's like, he's saying, I love you. And at first, perhaps they chuckled a little bit. And misunderstood because they're thinking it's like the marriage cup. They're like, what are we doing here? I mean, I thought this was Passover and he holds the cup up and acts like it's a marriage proposal. And then they're like, Oh, you mean you're literally, you're going to give your life for us. And not long after Jesus holds up the cup to them in the upper room. He is in the garden of Gethsemane and he is on his face before God in prayer. And he's praying with such intensity that it's like blood is coming out of his pores as he cries out to God and he says, God, if there's any way, please let this cup pass from me. Remember, this is the cup of wrath. This, if you drink this cup, it means God's judgment is going to come upon you. And Jesus says, please, if there's any other way please let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And not long after that, Jesus finds himself on the cross drinking of the cup of God's wrath. Why? Because he's taking the punishment that I deserved and that you deserved on the cross so that you and I have the opportunity to drink of the fourth cup so that we can be His people, and He can be our God, see? We're going to take communion together today. And there are communion stations in front of your seating sections. There are two here in the front. Those of you in the balcony will have to, you know, suffer for the Lord and walk down the stairs and go to the stations that are in the back. There are two back there. There's a station in the video cafe. And I want you to think about this communion because some of you were brought to church here for the purpose of taking your first communion, not the one where you're a little kid and you really don't know what's going on and your grandma made you do it, but this is the one where you know what's going on and you understand that when you come down here and you grab the little cracker that represents Jesus' broken body and you dip it into the the juice there that represents his blood and you put it in your mouth, it's like you're saying, I'm not pushing the cup away anymore, Jesus. I'm not pushing your relationship away anymore, but I'm going to receive your life on my behalf. And you know what will happen in that moment is you will begin a new love relationship with Yeshua, the greatest rabbi ever. Now, there are others of us that maybe this past year or maybe this past month or maybe 10 years ago or longer We've believed in Jesus and had love relationship with him, but you know what he says to us? He says, as often as you take that little cracker and dip it in the juice and eat it, you do it in remembrance of me. In other words, don't take this for granted. We're gonna do this fairly regular. We're we're calling it communion. We're calling it the Lord's table. But when you come to that table, you're like, Jesus, thank God you so much man i don't take you for granted i don't think you know it's all good jesus is not my homeboy i understand that jesus literally drank of the wrath of god on my behalf and i don't take it for granted god thank you that you sent your son jesus thank you jesus i want you to know i appreciate it to infinity because I get an opportunity to spend an eternity in paradise when I deserve something way worse for the stacked up stuff I've done in my life. But you loved me and you drank of the cup of suffering on my behalf. So let's stand together now and as the band plays, if you're comfortable to come and take communion, if you're not into this and don't buy into it, you can stay in your seat. We don't force you to do it or anything like that. But just one row at a time, come and you take the bread, dip it into the cup, and take it in and say, Jesus, thank you. I receive we thank you for drinking of that cup on our behalf. And we don't take you for granted. We love you. We lean into you and we say, we want to honor you and we want to magnify you and make much of you. And so make our focus as a people be straight on you, Jesus. We love you and can't thank you enough. And we pray all these things in the name of the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. Everyone said, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit citychurchdowntown.com.